0: It was back in 2006 that David Copperfield, the uh, famous Las Vegas illusionist, uh, came upon a fine that he was convinced would help with this particular problem. You may have read about it in the news. Copperfield paid $50 million in order to purchase four tiny islands in the Bahamas. And Copperfield actually felt that he got an extremely good deal on this particular purchase, because he claims to have found there nothing less than the proverbial fountain of youth. Listen to what Copperfield told a Reuters news agent uh, in a telephone uh, interview at that particular time. I've discovered a true phenomenon, he said. You can take dead leaves, and they come in contact with the water there, and they become full of life again. Bugs or insects that are near death come in contact with the water and they fly away. It's an amazing thing. Very, very exciting. Now you need to remember, of course, that this is the same magician who managed to uh, get hundreds of people to pay hundreds of dollars in order to sit on Liberty Island as he convinced them he had made the Statue of Liberty disappear. And you can go to Wikipedia and find out exactly how he pulled off that particular stunt. But you can see, can't you, why the whole Bahamian water story is intriguing, if nothing less. Why it excites um, curiosity, if nothing more. Countless cultures have had their own version of the fountain legend, haven't they? And, and, and how many advertisers and companies have sold their own version of that legend, promising the capacity to give you that new life that you really long for. All of this, I think, is because at first blush, the, the thought of gaining eternal youth seems the most desirable prize possible in life. But is it really... I sat with that question for myself uh, this past week. Would it be worth a fortune, everything that I had, if I could pay money and suddenly be given a perpetually younger version of Dan Meyer? And I thought, my wife might like that. She, she, she might enjoy having that lithe, a lot more toned 29-year-old that she married long ago. But then I thought she'd still be stuck with Dan Meyer. She'd still have to reckon with me. And that is the issue, frankly. Uh, Even though I spend, and maybe you do as well, spend considerable time worrying about the condition of my body, it is really my spirit that needs rejuvenation most. And I wonder how many of you would agree with that in your own life as well. Let me just ask you a few questions and invite you to take a look inside at what's going on for you. How many of you still find it hard to hold your tongue when you probably shouldn't have been silent or should, probably should have been silent? Or how many struggle sometimes to really speak up when important issues near need facing, but you tend to back down. How many of you, you don't have to raise a hand, you just know in your soul that that's true of you. Who here still takes offense after all these years at stupid slights and, and gets really angry at people for behaviors which they are actually enduring in you in a varied form all the time? Do any of you have a tendency to put off till tomorrow things which you know you know need attending to today and which you'll feel serious regrets about if you never get to them. I wonder how many of us could honestly admit that we have relatively little compassion for the poor, frankly. We're far more addicted to our own, our own comforts. It doesn't actually bother us a great deal that there are hundreds and hundreds of millions of people starving on the planet just as long as our lives are going along okay. Okay. In times of conflict, how many of you find yourself clenching up and refusing to let go? It never crosses your mind. How can I preserve the relationship? How can I build deeper uh, intimacy and understanding? But the focus becomes tunnel vision for you. How do I show that I'm right? How do I get them to agree? How do I get them to do what I know needs to be done? Who here still spends a lot of energy trying to prove yourself worthy of love or of respect or of applause and feeling resentful at some deep level you never talk about that you're not getting quite enough of us, enough of that. What's going on on the inside of who you are? Some of us find ourselves agreeing with the Apostle Paul when he made this particular confession in Romans chapter 7. I don't understand what I do, for I have the desire to do what's good, but I cannot carry it out, for what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. It is sin living in me that does it. Sin is not a subject that gets a lot of airplay these days. Even most preachers run away from the topic. It seems prune-faced. It seems old-fashioned. It's a downright downer. It's like the fact that I'm going after the topic means I'll have less of you here next week. It's not a subject that a lot of us want to spend our time dwelling on. Oh, sins we're okay with. We can talk about the little things, the occasional slip-ups, the, the things we could have done better. But the idea that there is within the human person a fundamental condition called sin is not something that's talked about as we look, about at, look at solving The great issues and problems of this day. The message of the Bible is that until we face this subject squarely, however, we cannot achieve our full potential. Going through life ignoring the issue of sin is like attempting to run a marathon but denying or ignoring the fact that you've got lung cancer. You wonder why you don't feel better. You wonder why you're not performing better, but you don't want to look at the core issue. You may be trying to work even harder as you're out there running. You're buying more expensive shoes. You're thinking about trading in that, uh, that running mate for somebody younger and more athletic so that you'd look better as you were out there running along. But the problem is not on the outside. The malady is on the inside. Our most pressing problem contrary to Copperfield is not our sagging bodies. Our most pressing problem today is our sin sick souls and the effect of that sin as it disfigures our orientation, our way of thinking, our way of feeling, our way of acting in our home life and our work life and our political life and our economic life. This issue of sin is the fundamental challenge of our time. Now, often we come at dealing with this subject by simply trying our way out of it. Uh, we try to adjust our attitude. We try to adjust our behaviors, modify our actions in some way. I say to myself, I'm going to try to really think less selfishly today. Uh, I'm going to try to control my temper more but, but that's not going to address the core problem within me any more than thinking positively or controlling my winces is going to cure cancer in me if I've got it. Our problem is so deep and it is so pervasive that, ironically, it is largely invisible. We have spent so much of our time living around other people with the illness that, that we look okay by comparison and never dream how sick we are. It's only, in fact, when we see someone who is truly vitalized, who is absolutely healthy, that we begin to recognize how limited we are. And this is why an encounter with Jesus is one of the most health-producing experiences that anybody could ever have. To encounter the person of Jesus and to see the way he loves and the way he lives and the way he uh, stoops to serve and the way he handles conflict and the, the, the way he uh, manages difficult people and the way he uses resources and the way he extends his life, this ultimately shows us what perfect health looks like. And Jesus is the one who tells us that our condition is so deep and significant that there is only one cure for it. There's only one remedy for it. It's not going to be fixed by band-aids and slight adjustments and tweaks here and there. Jesus says, you must be born again. You must be born again. Now, when Jesus first spoke those words to Nicodemus late one night, Nicodemus was confused by them, as many people are today. Nicodemus was different than the average person, I suppose, in that he really knew he needed help. (laughs) I mean, he was very clear that as far along as he was in many ways, it wasn't all working right. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, John chapter 3 and verse 1 tells us. That means he was a guy who was into religion. He was, uh, he was part of what we would call today the religious rite of his time. He was a man who had leadership gifts and capacities significant enough that he'd been elected by his peers to the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. He had a lot of things going for him. He was a player, and yet he knew there was something not right in his heart, not right in his life that needed mending, His colleagues had rejected Jesus for bluntly calling out the issues of life. They had turned against Jesus, viewed him as a personal threat, as a social hazard, and they had pushed him away. In fact, we're conspiring at this moment to get rid of Jesus, but but Nicodemus was a rare breed. He knew he needed to get closer to Jesus. And so at the end of a long workday, and risking the possibility that he'd be humiliated or considered a traitor by see, being seen going to Jesus, Nicodemus stayed up late one night, went out into the darkness, and went to the place where Jesus was. Because he recognized in Jesus the power of life. He'd seen the healing miracles. He'd heard the clarity and wisdom with which Jesus spoke. He had very likely heard what had happened in the temple courts, maybe even seen it himself the day before as recorded in John chapter 2 when Jesus walked in and with the very authority of his presence, single-handed, cleared the entire temple of the money changers that were there ripping off the poor. And Nicodemus knew that in Jesus was the power of life and of blessing And so he comes to Jesus late this night, and he says to him, no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. And he's pleading, give me this power. Give me this God. Give me this life. And Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus responds, how? How can a man be born when he's old? And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. In other words, Jesus is saying, Everybody needs to have two births in order to be fully alive. All of you have the first birth. By virtue of the fact that you're sitting here today and I'm standing here today, we've all got the first birth down. We've got the water birth down. We all came to the water of our mother's womb and into this world. We've been physically born. But you also need to be born spiritually. By the power of God's spirit, Jesus is saying here. And until that happens, until that birth happens, you don't really have life in all of its fullness. Minneapolis pastor John Piper puts it this way. By our first birth, we are only flesh. But this natural human condition as we experience it is spiritually lifeless let me don't let me just unpack that for a second it's not that people don't have spiritual thoughts it's not that we don't talk about matters of the spirit um, before the second birth it's just that we're not as vitalized we're nowhere near as alive as we could be and we often don't know it we're not born spiritually with a heart that loves God and that's the truth we're not We may say our prayers as little children, but we don't love God. We love our parents, uh, the closest we know how to get to God, but we don't know Him and we don't love Him deeply. Because of the disease of sin, we're born spiritually dead. And that's why, unless one is born again, says Piper, he can't see the kingdom of God. The dead can't see. That is, they can't see God's kingdom as supremely desirable. So many of us go through our lives hearing about the kingdom of God, feeling in some part of us that maybe we should be into the kingdom of God or we should be working on being about the kingdom of God, but, but we can't see it. We don't find ourselves enraptured by it. We don't find ourselves consumed by a passion for it, a longing to give ourselves in love to God and to serve Him with everything that we have and wherever we go and with everybody that we meet. We, we're blind. We're blind to the kingdom and to the fullness of what is possible. And the kingdom, says Piper, looks foolish or it looks mythical or it looks boring. But it isn't. The way of Jesus, the way of his kingdom, is the most real and beautiful and exciting and compelling and worth giving it to your, giving it all to reality that exists in the universe. And it's the life that all of us and this world desperately needs. Desperately needs. So, how do we get it? How can I be born again, asks Nicodemus. You are Israel's teacher, says Jesus in reply. And you do not understand these things? Haven't you read your Bible, he's saying? Don't you remember what the prophets said? What they predicted? God had said through the prophet Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, one that really beats as it was intended to beat. And I will put my spirit in you and I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. In other words, I will move you to obey everything that I have commanded you and you will find it joy. I will do this. And Jesus went on to say that for that particular purpose, the Son of Man must be lifted up, he said to Nicodemus, as in up on a cross, So that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loves this world, says Jesus. He loves it so much that he gave his one and only son to pour out his life's blood for us. That whosoever should believe in him may have eternal life. We're gonna unpack these ideas in much fuller measure in the several weeks ahead. So let me just try to summarize the message that I am hoping you are gonna take home with you today, just for today, and let you go. Our major need as an American people, our major need as a Chinese people, our major need as an African people Our major need, as any people, is not so much for physical restoration. Restoration of our economy, restoration of our bridge infrastructure, restoration of our bodies. Our major need is for spiritual vitalization. Because if spiritual vitalization happens, all of the other things will take care of themselves over time. The good news is that spiritual vitalization is possible. The good news is that there is a fountain that flows whose flow can create a youthful vitality even in us old guys, even in us who are battle-hardened and weary and disfigured and bowed down and, and weighted from all of the pressures and all of the weariness of life. A new, youthful, spiritual vitality can happen for anyone who puts themselves under the flow of God's stream. Jesus was saying that when he was lifted up from the earth, lifted high on that cross, his life's blood, sacrificed in love for us, would wash away the power of sin's disease. We would still be left with some of its lingering effects, but its ultimate power to destroy us and to limit us would be vanquished upon the cross And thereafter, anyone who would put their faith in the power of his redeeming grace could start again, could begin life, a spiritual life, again. And Jesus taught that God not only has the power to give us this fresh spiritual beginning, he can give us the power, the strength we need to grow up into the fullness of maturity as citizens of the kingdom of God of God itself. And so at the end of the day, when Jesus commands, you must be born again, what he's really saying is, you must put your hope in God. You must stop trying to tweak yourself and fix yourself and modify yourself and do it all yourself. You must put your hope in the one who has the power to restore you. Think about it. Think about that whole birth analogy. Who of us chose where we were conceived? Raise your hand if you chose that. Who of us chose when we were born? Who of us chose. How we would grow. And the very physical life we have is because an agency from beyond ourselves acted powerfully and enabled life for us. So it is with the Spirit. The transformation of human character depends upon God's action even more than it does upon our action. There are things, of course, that we can do to cooperate with God's action. We'll talk about these things in coming weeks. But as Jesus said to Nicodemus, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you can't tell where it's come from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. It's in the mysterious movement of God that the new life comes. It's the mysterious movement of God that will bring you to faith, that will open your heart to him, that will alter your way of being in the world, that will renew your relationships. It's in the mysterious power of God that vitalization occurs. We need God. We need God. We need God so much more desperately than many of us have known. So as you head out today, as you go on your way to wherever you've been called next, let me invite you to take a step in the direction of God. Maybe you come here today, frankly, struggling to even believe in Him. I mean, that's the real issue now. You don't even think you believe in God. That part of you is dead. Whatever it is that works in other people, it just doesn't work for you, it's dead. You you don't have faith in God. Ask him anyway to give you belief. Some of you come to this place today knowing that you are seriously sin sick. I mean, you can feel it in your relationships. You can feel it in yourself. You watch yourself going through the same movements, destroying yourself, destroying other people in horrible ways. And you're at that point in your life where you think, I got to fix this. I got to get out of this. Something needs to change. Ask Him to be your power for change. Ask Him to forgive you. Ask Him to wash you clean. Ask Him to give you a fresh beginning. Others of you come to this place today, you're already a person that follows God, but you're you're going through the labor of some very difficult birthing passage. You're being squeezed. It hurts. It's dark. You don't know where you're going. You've been pushed out of some comfortable womb that at least you knew the contours of, and suddenly you're racing down this awful birthing passage. Ask God to give you the confidence, the peace of mind, to believe that it is simply a passage designed to move you to an even greater life. And trust Him in that. Put your hope in Him today. Maybe you need power from beyond yourself to make a critical change. Ask God to be your strength. Because Even though it may be dark, Nicodemus, even though you may be fairly far along in the journey, even though it may not have happened for you before or when you wanted it to, believe this God would not have sent his only son to die for you if he did not have the capacity to make it so that you could be born again. Please pray with me. Lord, much like the little one crying, we just depend upon you. We cry out to you. And we ask you to do in us what we cannot do for ourselves. And in our restlessness and in our unknowing and all that just feels chaotic about our lives or maybe way too complacent, we ask you, Lord, to come to us, to fill us, to renew us, to bear the new life in us that is possible only through the power of your Holy Spirit. For this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.